I get to preach about once a month, sometime between 12 and 15 times a year, and so we'll try to make it through the book of uh, Luke in uh, in short time, but in about 25 to 30 sermons, which if you think about, it's actually quite uh, hopefully moving through quickly because uh, the book of Luke has 24 chapters in it. I want to preach through Luke and then uh, eventually one day through Acts. The two of those combine Luke's uh, message, really both of these combined make up over 25, actually 27 percent of the New Testament. It's a ton of information. In fact, Luke has more content in the New Testament word wise and page wise than any other author. Paul wrote more books. Luke wrote more content. And so I think it's a great book for us to look at and go through. I mean, I'm excited to preach through this book, and hopefully you are too. You may be looking at the text for today, which is Luke 1, 1 through 80. And you may be thinking, one minute a verse, that's a lot of time. And uh, we'll try and move through it a little quicker than that. But I'm excited to preach through the book of Luke. It's incredible. It has so many illustrations and allusions back to the Old Testament. It actually doesn't quote the Old Testament as much as many of the other other Gospels and the other New Testament books, but Luke alludes to the Old Testament. It's exciting because the book emphasizes salvation. It tells of the lost being saved. It shows disciples being made. It gives proof to Jesus being the Savior. And it gives us confidence as Christians to believe that we can be His disciples too. It's written... The book of Luke is written to assure and give Christians confidence that God's plan was for the Jews and Gentiles and that we can bring this message of salvation to the nations. And that really that slide that's up there is really the theme of Luke. Confidence in Christ should lead to the proclamation uh, proclaiming his name to all nations. Really, Luke should give us supreme confidence, utmost confidence that Jesus is the Savior. And that's what he writes to do. But when we look at Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at the purpose in a minute, but Luke chapter 1 is filled with anticipation. There's like this excitement that's building. And you know, there's excitement that's building, and and even in our congregation now, we have a few different uh, couples that are expecting in the next few months, and I remember very well the anticipation of our first baby. We were in Taiwan, and and Hannah was expecting with Titus, and uh, Titus was born in Taiwan. We were there for three more months after that and came to the States. And during that time, I just remember the excitement, the nervousness, the the wonder of this new baby that we're going to have. And I also remember Hannah being really ready for the baby to come because she was uncomfortable. Uh, you know, there's a lot of expectation. There's also a little bit of a fear because of the pain that goes along with it. But you just can't wait for that newborn baby. It seems like forever sometimes. The waiting and discomfort because discomfort seems like it never is going to pass. And then 14 plus years later, we have a monster baby, a bundle of joy. Soon the wait is over. And that's the feeling in Luke chapter 1. Anticipation and expectation of what God is going to do. Let's look, and in your handout, you're just going to see the different scenes in Luke. 
And I, I've got some things that we're going to draw some conclusions at the end, but we're going to look through this scene by scene. And you can just use your Bible as well if you want. We're going to look at it scene by scene. But the first thing we want to look at is the purpose in Luke. Luke starts off in the first four verses and tells us these things. He says in verse one, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I want to make a couple notes. Right off the bat, when we look at the book of Luke, Luke is a narrative. And so we need to read this not like an epistle. We shouldn't read it like Paul's letters. We should read this actually more like a story. We should read it as a story unfolding. And then we should see that the story that's unfolding is actually a well-written account that Luke is trying to compile all the things that have been accomplished and fulfilled. He tells us that that's what it's for. And in fact, in the end of Luke, he tells us, Jesus even says, I say these things so that you can understand what's been fulfilled among you, what's been accomplished. And when he says that he's been taking these things or he's looked for at many eyewitnesses and ministers, Luke, he may have followed along with Paul and he may have seen some of the things with Jesus. But really, Luke's content comes from getting eyewitness accounts and actually interviewing people, probably asking ministers. And Luke also probably has Mark and the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, both of those to look at. Mark was probably written sometime uh, in the mid 50s uh, A.D. and Matthew as well, maybe just after that or the early 60s. And Luke is written probably early 60s A.D. So Luke has a lot of content to look at. And Theophilus, the guy that's mentioned here, most excellent Theophilus, is probably a wealthy uh, businessman or maybe even a ruler. And he commissions or even pays Luke to help write this book. Now, obviously, we understand that inspiration was going on here and God is guiding the words that as they're going and and God is at working through this, but also he's using Luke's gifts as a physician that's very detailed to write an orderly account. And then he said, his, says his purpose, and he says it in verse three and four, and he tells Theophilus and really other Jewish Christians and Gentiles all around. He's saying this. He says, this is written so that you would believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah about the Old Testament and so that you'd have confidence in Jesus as your Messiah. And so this needs to be in our mind constantly as we look at Luke, that the purpose of Luke is to give us confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done. Let's look, though, in, in the second part or the second scene that we're going to see. But that's actually going to be back in Malachi. So if you're in, a, in your Bibles, you can just turn back to the very last book of the Old Testament. But that's really where Luke begins. And it says this in, in Malachi. And these verses are critical. So as we think about Luke starting here in Luke 1, really think almost back with Malachi chapter 3 and 4. And these verses... Remember them as I read them, because they're going to trigger something in your mind. They're going to trigger something when we start reading in a little bit. It says this in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you will seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. A little later in Malachi, the last verses say this in Malachi 4.4-6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I've commanded at Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. He writes these words, Malachi prophesies, and then all of a sudden in Israel's history, there is 400 years of silence. Everyone had been expecting what Malachi had been talking about. They expected a messenger. They were looking for a messenger before the Messiah, actually. They understood a messenger would come, somebody preparing the way before the Messiah. But for 400 years, there's nothing going on. There's silence. The anticipation for the Messiah was great. Every good Jewish person would be anticipating this messenger. But there's 400 years of nothing going on. If you looked at your New Testament, that page, or Old Testament and New Testament, that page in between that would just sit, be blank or say New Testament, imagine that saying 400 years of no prophecy in Israel. When the messenger would come, would they believe him? Well, we'll see this in scene one here. Zechariah visits the temple, but God also visits the temple. It says in verse five, in the days of Herod, King Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in year. Time now comes in Israel, where Herod is the ruler. And Herod is an awful ruler. In fact, some commentators believe Herod's kingdom here or that his rule over Israel is almost as bad as the time when Israel was in Egypt. And you know how awful that time was. And some people would say it's not quite as bad, but it's a very awful time. And so there's an expectation, a hope that there's some way for them to get out from under this rule of Herod and those around. But during this a terrible time. God works through two people and they're mentioned here, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we should hear them uh, that they have connections to the temple. And if you remember in Malachi, it said the Lord, this messenger and the Lord's going to come to the temple. The temple is always something in the Old Testament that that's where God's presence is. And so we should be expecting God to come into the temple. And so when we look at the Messiah story, when we look at the Messiah story, we sometimes think of Jesus coming in Luke chapter two. Really, we should actually just say, no, Luke chapter one is where we see Jesus coming. And it's in the temple here, Elizabeth and Aaron. Unfortunately, there's a problem in this story. And the story begins with one that's familiar in Israel's history. The end of that verse says in verse seven that Elizabeth was barren. And they were advanced in years. This should immediately trigger a lot of things in Israel's history. We understand that there was barrenness during this time. Somebody that didn't was unable to have a child would sometimes be looked down on and have shame. There was just disappointment because there was no one to pass on that line. And there was a hope for the future that wasn't there. And so barrenness is in this story. And we should immediately, when we think of this, we should remember back and think like any good Jew would during this time when they read this story of Luke and he's trying to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah, they should immediately hear and read, oh, a barren woman that's older that can't have a child. This brings to mind Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18. We should also remember Rebecca and Rachel, 
Samson's mom in Judges 13, and Hannah in Samuel 1. All of these women were barren. And all of these women would pray to God and eventually give birth to heroes in Israel's history that were linked to covenant fulfillment. And so immediately when we read this, we should be thinking, God is doing something. God is starting to work. So just the words of a barren woman should make us start to think, God's doing something. And when they're reading this, they would understand that. So let's look in verse 8. What's God doing? Now, while he was praying as a priest, this is Zechariah, when he was praying as a priest before God, uh, when his division was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he uh, for he will be, be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient of the wisdom, uh, disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And immediately when we read this, we should be thinking, I just heard some of that in Malachi. You should just be thinking God's doing something. And Zechariah, he's serving the Lord. He's in the temple. He's doing what he's supposed to. He had been chosen for this time. He's in a place just before the Holy of Holies. And he's working and serving the Lord. And an angel appears to him. And obviously, he's terrified. Just like pretty much every other account in the Bible, he's terrified. Everybody else sees an angel. They're terrified. If you saw an angel, you'd probably be terrified too. And he's terrified. He's wondering what's going on. And the angel says uh, that Gabriel speaks to him. And we see God is beginning to work. He's heard the, uh, the, uh, he's, uh, God has heard the prayers. And this angel is telling, uh, telling Zechariah that he's going to have a child. That his wife is actually going to bear a child. And his name is John. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, any time the angel names a child like Isaac, it's critically important to the covenant of Israel and what's going on. And so this is critically important. And John starts to understand or John will be set apart just like a Nazarite. If you remember, Samuel was uh, Samuel was prayed for by Hannah. Hannah for years didn't have a baby. And she prays and prays and prays. And finally, she has a baby. And that baby is set apart just like John's going to be set apart. But John is going to be set apart for a different purpose. John's purpose is set apart to be the messenger that goes before the Lord, the one that's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And verse 17, verse 17 should have been like an alarm bell going off in your head, like the siren that goes off when you go into the building and the alarms going off or your car siren going off. It should be like, man, I just heard this. God is working. All of a sudden, this is being fulfilled. And Zacharias should have known that too. I mean, he was a godly man, righteous, blameless, working in the temple. If he knew the Word of God, he should have known the Word of God just as well as anybody else. 
But listen to Zechariah's response. It says in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, Zechariah asked a question. And for us, we may not think it's a big deal. He'd be like, well, he's asking a question like, how do I know this? Right. This seems like a basic question like, uh, you know, well, how do I know that's going to be true? Doesn't seem like a big deal, but it very clearly shows his unbelief. His question shows his unbelief. And fortunately, he dodges a bullet. He doesn't call his wife old. He just very carefully says that she's advanced in years. Okay, so guys, take note of that. But he's missed the big picture. He's missed the huge picture here. God's working and he's the angel has said exact language of the Old Testament. And this should be just light bulbs and fireworks going off in his brain saying God's moving. He's not spoken for 400 years. Here it is. But he doesn't listen to the word of God. And the angel spoke to Zechariah and tells him what's going to happen. But Zechariah is now going to be unable to speak for the next nine months. In fact, if you look in verse 62, you don't need to, but you would just see that they're trying to make signs to Zechariah. And Zechariah can't speak. And if they're trying to make signs to Zechariah, it probably means he's deaf as well. Otherwise, they don't understand what, you know, his muteness is. You know, they may be like, well, he can hear, but, you know, he probably couldn't hear. So most would say he was mute and deaf. And for nine months... He sat in silence. There already been 400 years of silence. Now he gets nine months more to think about what God has said to him through the angel. God was ready to speak and to move. Zechariah wasn't ready to listen. And just a side note, sometimes God's ready to speak to us through his word. And we're just not ready to listen. Sometimes it's because we've got too many distractions, too many things going on, and we just want to listen and hear the news of the day, the podcast of the opportunity, what's going on. And we're so distracted that we're not really ready to listen, hear, believe and obey the word of God. Zechariah, of all people, should have been ready, but he wasn't. That's OK. It didn't stop God's plan. Keeps going. And we see Elizabeth conceives and realizes what the Lord has done and her reproach is gone. And we see now in scene two of this passage, Gabriel visits Mary. He's already made a visit to the temple and to Zechariah. Now he visits Mary. And in verse 26, it says this in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to Mary, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. 
for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom uh, there will be no end. So in the sixth month, it refers here to Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so during this pregnancy of Elizabeth, uh, during that time, just a little while after uh, he, the angel has spoken to Zechariah, now Mary receives a visit. And note, Luke very carefully gives the lineage of Joseph and lays it out. And Luke, again, as I've said, read this book with the understanding that we need confidence to believe the word of God. And he says the line of David, and he tells us where Joseph's from so that we would believe that this is the king that's supposed to be coming. And he tells us very specifically a couple times. The passage tells us that Mary is a virgin and Mary as a virgin is critical to our understanding of Jesus's sinlessness. Jesus is holy because he has no sin from the male father says this in Isaiah 7:14, and it should be triggering all these prophecies. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, his, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Mary, when she hears this news, she's troubled and she's she's obviously nervous, but she understands something. God's plan is being unfolded. She understands God's working. But she doesn't, she's a little bit similar to Zechariah. I mean, sometimes Zechariah was, or a time ago we're looking at Zechariah and Zechariah doesn't believe. Mary's response is a little bit different. Can you believe years, thousands of years, literally waiting for thousands of years in Jewish history for the Messiah to come? And this little servant girl, who really is nobody in the temple, just somebody that God found is upright, is now going to bear the Son of God, the one that will sit on the throne of David. She's excited, but she's got questions too. Look in verse 34. She's got a question. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power, uh, and, uh, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, now Zachariah's question and Mary's question are both short, sweet and to the point. They sound very similar. You're like, hey, uh, Zachariah was condemned for this and Mary's just got an explanation. But Mary's question wasn't filled with unbelief. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She's just asking. She understands and believes it. She's just understanding. Look, I understand a man and a woman have to come together for a baby to be born. That's like. Pretty much how it always happens. In fact, there's no stories in Israel's history of that not happening. There are lots of stories in Israel's history of barren women with an old dude getting together and having a child. There's lots of stories of that. That's a big deal. We should understand prophecies happening. But this is even more monumental. This young virgin is going to have a child. And she says, well, how? 
And the angel Gabriel answers that it's by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High is going to overshadow her. Very similar language to Genesis, how God overshadows the waters and the earth. But it's actually more incredible here because overshadowing Mary is going to be the Holy Spirit and conceived in her is going to be the Son of God, the Messiah. The one that's been waited for for year after year, month after month, decade, century after century. And he says this in verse 37, and it should bring to mind Genesis 18, all these like hyperlinks back to the Old Testament. It says this in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And that's just like what the angel said to Abraham and Sarah when they say, well, how's this going to happen? How are we going to have a son? We're so old. And the angel says to them, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer to that rhetorical question is obviously no, absolutely not. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. For the, so the fact that a virgin can conceive the Son of God is not anything that's too hard for God. If that's what's got you hung up on the gospel, if that's what's got you, you're just like, I can't believe that that would actually happen. Let me just tell you, there are so many miracles that God has worked in the in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. This should just be one of those another one of those that we would just say, this is God's incredible power that I don't understand. And when you try and understand every single thing that's going to happen and how he does every little minute detail, your brain's going to explode because we don't know. We're not supernatural. God is. He's eternal. He has the power to do this. We don't. And so what does Mary do? She humbly believes. She obeys. I'm sure there's a million questions in her mind. In fact, there's a lot of fear in her heart. She's a young lady that's not married, just betrothed, and she's going to be pregnant. Eventually, she's going to show that she's pregnant. And eventually, there's probably going to be shame and ridicule. But yet, she believes. She obeys. She faithfully trusts God's Word and goes on to bear the Son of God. Let's go to the next point here in scene three in verse 39. The story is moving through fast. We're halfway through the book and more than halfway through this halfway through the uh, chapter and more than halfway through the sermon. So rest assured we're getting there in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, into a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then after that, there's that Mary's Magnificat, which is uh, verses 46 through 56. We're not going to read that, but pastor read it earlier. And I want to make reference to that, that it's an incredible passage that's so connected to 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. At some point, if you want to this week, if you just want to see God's prophecy being fulfilled and how God uses the Old Testament, go compare side by side 1 Samuel 2 and Luke chapter 1 and Mary's, uh, Mary's praise. Incredible to see how God works throughout history. But simultaneously, earlier, Mary had heard of her pregnancy, and she also gets the news of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You know how word of mouth kind of spreads really quick? Somebody says, don't tell anybody. 
so-and-so's expecting. In fact, somebody's told me that before, and they tell me don't tell anybody, and by the time I get home, I forget, and I don't even tell my wife, and she's like, you didn't tell me that? I, you know, and I, I mean, I forget about this stuff, and this is no surprise to Mary, because the angel makes this baby announcement. I mean, we can make some cool cards about a baby, baby announcement, but the angel announces to Mary, you're going to have a child, and Elizabeth is going to have a child. So she runs, or she makes haste, to the hill country to see Elizabeth. And John the Baptist, in the womb of Elizabeth, recognizes pre-birth who the Lord is. There's a lot of theology wrapped up in that and to think about, but we'll have to look at that and think about it another time. But this baby, this infant, it's proof that this is the Lord. And again, just notice, when you look through this passage, the Holy Spirit is mentioned again. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in Elizabeth. And all throughout this passage and all throughout Luke, the Holy Spirit is mentioned over and over. And Mary is called blessed. And Mary is also called by Elizabeth, who's being uh, the Holy Spirit is upon her. Mary is also said to be one that believed. So the Holy Spirit and the angel both say that Mary believes and trusts God. Look, you may be listening to me and say, you know what? I think it's unfair that Zachariah got punished to be mute. For, I mean, you, some of you guys may be like, man, I, to be mute for nine months after just asking a question. Come on, that's not fair. No, it's totally fair. God did it. The other thing that you need to understand is Mary, it's very clear that she believed. She was told it's told that the, the angel tells us she believed. And the Holy Spirit tells us through Elizabeth that she believed. And just a side note, Luke mentions Elizabeth and Mary, and they're prominent in this story. And they're going to be, there's going to be women prominent throughout the book of Luke, which runs counterculture to everything that goes on in early, uh, early uh, New Testament history. During that culture, women had a very low status. And in Luke's gospel, already, women are highly elevated. In fact, women are the ones that believe, the, one, and the ones that trust and follow God. And so Luke's putting this preeminence or this pro- prominence, I should say, on women and they're listening to the story and believing. Incredible. Somebody writing this in the time that doesn't have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's not following by God, would have not used women as a proof. But God did. And God's promises are coming true. And let me just make a note on that, that big prayer or that praise and song that Mary or sings or says. So much of it, as you look at it, is written in the past tense. She, all she says is all this stuff has been done. She knows these promises that God has given are done and going to be finished. God's promises, listen, God's promises are as good as done from the moment he says in. From the moment that God says his promises, those promises are as good as done. He never breaks his promises. So let's finish up and look here towards the end. The last scene, the Holy Spirit visiting Zechariah says in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father. This is probably telling us that he's deaf as well as mute. They made signs to the father inquiring what they wanted him to be called. 
And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hills country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. That's jumping down to verse 80. We see Zechariah's prophecy there, 67 to 79. And as Pastor read that earlier, we're not going to go through and look at all that. I would love to go back and hopefully one day we'll go back and preach through both the songs and the prophecy here because they're so filled with so much detail of what's going to happen and what has happened. But I just want to look at this overview story. Sometime Mary Elizabeth goes home and leaves Elizabeth. And this baby is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this is critical. I mean, we may think of it just as a procedure today or whatever, but this was critical for the baby because it was going to identify him with covenant Israel. This was going to make him a part of covenant Israel. This would help us understand where he is in the society. We also see that this happens on the eighth day, he's going to be named. Now, not every child was named on the eighth day. Sometimes a child was named on the first day. We have uh, some example of that. But we see that this is a special time. And his name would have usually been Zechariah, named something after the uh, father. But instead, Elizabeth says his name is John. And, And the neighbors, I mean, they're all around. I mean, this is an event. I mean, this is a big deal because it's a ceremonial thing in Israel. You may think that no neighbors should come around for the circumcision of a baby, but this is a big deal for everybody. This is different than our society. This is what's happening, and all these people are here, and this is critical to the story. Understand that them being there is critical because they're here, and when they hear the name John, they're stunned. They're like, why? And they ask the dad, they're like, hey, they start making signs somehow. I mean, I would have loved to see this. Like, hey, hey, what do you have to say, Zachariah? You can't hear what she said, but she said something incredulous. And he gets a writing tablet, the earliest iPad or whatever it was, and he writes the name John. And immediately he's able to speak. Immediately he is able to start praising God. He starts giving blessing to God. And everyone that's here sees something and knows something's going on. They're, they're like, I can't believe he's named John. And then I can't believe that his dad now can speak again. I mean, Zachariah, this guy that was in the temple that was mute for nine months, it was the best nine months of Elizabeth's life because he couldn't talk, right? I mean, they're just like, I am stunned by this. I cannot believe it. And what do they do? They start to tell people, John, at his birth, becomes famous. And that's critical for the testimony of Jesus. How do we know that Jesus is true? Well, John's going to give credibility to Jesus. And even at birth, he's a public figure. And what does it say? They hide these things in their heart and they ask a question. They ask a question that really Zechariah answers in his prophecy. Their question says, what then will this child be? And Zechariah answers that question with his prophecy. Zechariah prophesies, and I don't think Zechariah actually understands this whole prophecy. That's just how every prophet was in the Old Testament. They would prophesy and not necessarily understand everything that's going on and every detail, but they would speak the word of the Lord. And Zechariah prophesies, and it seems like he, and along with so many other Jewish people, believe that Jesus is going to be the ruler 
and conquer Rome. He's going to wage a war against Rome. He's going to he's going to sit on the throne there currently. But it's actually going to be a heavenly kingdom. And these things are going to all make sense later on. But he predicts, Zechariah does, predicts in his prophecy that John's ministry is going to be one that precedes the Lord and brings salvation. John's ministry is going to preach repentance and people are going to turn to God for forgiveness and mercy. This is what Malachi said was going to happen. This is what the Old Testament said was going to happen. And it's happening. It's happening. These people in Judah, uh, Judea, the, in the hill country, they may be like, I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. God's starting to move. And this chapter finishes in verse 80. And John is in the wilderness. And he's getting ready. And he's going to prepare and be the front runner or forerunner of Jesus. And if you think in the Old Testament, this is just another time that Jesus or the, the Word of God ties things together. Didn't so many times Israel come out of the wilderness to have a wonderful time of God's promise? And out of the wilderness here is there's going to be the, this prophet, this prophet John that's pronouncing that the, that the Lord is coming. And out of the wilderness, we're going to see the Messiah. Out of the wilderness, we're going to see this promised Savior that takes away the sins of the world. Isn't God good? And all this credibility starts to stack up. This is John's resume. And this is Jesus' resume getting started. And if, you, if you're writing your resume, what qualifications do you have? Well, John's starting to check all the boxes for the Old Testament. And he's got the resume to be the messenger. And Jesus is going to have the resume to be the Messiah. Let me highlight a couple things and we're done. Let me th- think first and make some application with Zechariah's response and Mary's response. Zechariah, despite everything he knew, all of his training, wasn't ready to hear and believe. It wasn't that he was a bad guy. He's a believer. He's righteous. He's blameless. He's obedient. When God speaks to them, though, he doesn't listen. 400 years of silence wasn't enough. He's going to have to have nine months more. And God is starting to fulfill those prophecies. The last thing Zechariah says is this, that his wife is advanced in years. I bet that was real fulfilling for nine months. I mean, nine months he had to think about what the angel said to him. He probably had to sit there and think, why didn't I believe? I knew. I know what God has said. Why wouldn't I believe? Why wouldn't I obey? And it's like us. I know what God says. I know it. I I know it. I have no doubt on what God says. But I don't believe it. And I often don't obey it. But Mary, on the other hand, immediately hears it. She's willing to listen. She believes and obeys. She didn't know how it would happen, but she trusts God. Which one of these people do you often identify with? Often, I'm like Zachariah. God, I know what you said. I'm just not sure that it's actually true. And I may not say that out loud because I'm going to say I believe God's word. But a lot of times, my actions prove that I don't. My actions prove that I don't trust that God is better than the sinful desires that I may have. I don't trust that God is actually going to make a way. What are the things that you're involved in all kinds of religious activities, all times, kinds of hearing the word, but not actually listening and obeying it. Be like Mary. Listen to the word. Receive it. You may not understand how God's going to fulfill it in your life, but obey God. Trust him. 
You may be going through difficult times or saying making decisions for college, for life, for jobs and be like, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to believe God and I'm going to trust him. You may be thinking God's calling you in your life to even preach the word of God, to go out and follow him. You'd be like, God can't be calling me to do that. I don't think I can. I don't want to. That sounds scary. And God may be moving in your life to do something and you know it's true, but you don't want to obey. He may be saying, share Christ with a coworker, share the gospel with a friend or family member. And you're like, no, they won't believe. I don't think they'll I don't think they'll trust that. that that's an impossible case. That right there is no way. We had a picture, I think, just a, I don't know if John has it up there. Maybe he put it up on the screen, but there was a picture of one of the young men. He got, he got baptized today. This is one of the young men was, was on my, on my team in Germany. I mean, God works. I mean, there's kids that I think there's no way. I mean, I, I think his brother is an atheist. His brother, older brother is saying, no. No, there is no God. And he's telling this to his little brother and his, ba- his brother is baptized today. God works. Why don't we trust him? Why are we like Zachariah? <laughs> That's like, <laughs> how's that going to happen? <laughs> I'm not believing that. I don't think I can do it. Believe, obey, repeat. Believe, obey, repeat. Believe, obey, repeat until death. Second, We can believe Jesus because of what's written here by John the Baptist or by Luke about John the Baptist. Really, John the Baptist is the most prominent person in the story in chapter one. There's all kinds of other people. But what Luke is writing is telling us John is the central figure. This is the guy. Pay attention because he has the resume to tell us who Jesus is. And let me just ask you this question. If you are somebody here that does not believe in Jesus Christ as a savior, that you've not trusted him as forgiveness of sins. Why not? John gives everything we need. Uh, We see John is like this proof guy. He's the messenger. He's checking off all the boxes. And we're going to see through the book of Luke. Jesus is the savior. And you may be thinking, I don't know if I want to trust Christ because that would mean I would have to give up all these things. I don't know if I can believe him because following him might mean my life changes. My family might reject me. It might be frustrating because I would have to change everything. And let me just tell you, that is what belief is and trusting God. You follow him and say, I believe you, Lord, that you can save me from my sins and save me from for eternity. And I'm leaving everything else in your hands because I trust you. If you don't believe John's witness, whose are you going to believe? And last, as I said earlier, God's promises when he says them are as good as done. It took a long time for the Messiah to arrive. Can you imagine the silence in Israel for 400 years and years and years and years before this? They hear prophecy after prophecy of the Messiah and they're like, we wanted this guy to be here already. Eve wanted Jesus to be there. She thought the first son was gonna, her first son was going to be the Messiah. Abraham and Sarah think Isaac may be the Messiah right away. It took a long time, but God fulfills his promises. Listen, we're waiting for the good day that the Lord returns. We're with him. It may seem like a long time. Christ left almost 2000 years ago. 
And we sometimes may doubt and think Jesus may have given up on us. Maybe this word of God isn't true. But let me tell you, have supreme confidence. And despite your doubts, God keeps his word. So trust in him. Keep following him. Despite your doubts, keep trusting God. Because in his time, he will fulfill his word. So keep trusting him.